You're listening to a Reykjavik Grapevine podcast. Were they really serious to start murdering and maiming defenseless people because of a misunderstanding and because of a megalomaniac superiority ideal? What have Icelanders become? Is it just a game to take men's lives, spill the blood of their countrymen and make them crippled for life? A great fear and dark thoughts descended on the people of the city. Hi, my name is Jon Tristisjörsson, the publisher of the Reykjavik Grapevine, and this is the Alternative History of Iceland, episode 5, What If There Had Been a Revolution in Iceland? The previous excerpt is taken from the diary of Elka, who was a working woman in Reykjavik in 1921. She's talking about an episode known as the White War, which brought the country to the brink of a civil war. With me is historian Valur Gunnarsson, who has a chapter on this in his new book, what if Vikings had conquered the world and other questions of Icelandic and Nordic history? So, Valur, how close was Iceland to a revolution in 1921? Well, to answer that, I think we must first look at the general situation in Europe, because these are revolutionary times. Context, context, context. Always context. That's what history is, my dear. <laughs> and words. Many, many words. Thick books. Yeah, I mean, 1921, we've just gotten out of the Great War. Yes, um, but even if it's all quiet on the Western Front, there is still war raging in Europe, all over Eastern Europe and in other places as well. And even if I'm something of a of an expert in Eastern and Central European history, it's just very complicated to, to keep track of who is fighting whom. The Hungarians are fighting the Czechs and the Romanians and the Poles are fighting the Russians and the Germans and the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians are fighting the Reds and the Whites and the Reds and the Whites, of course, are fighting each other in the Russian Civil War and then there's the Greeks fighting the Turks. Even in Ireland, there is a, a, a war of independence against the British, which will then become a civil war. So... You know, the war didn't really end in 1918. That's just on the Western Front. So anything can still happen. So in, in you know, it's it's the 1920s or late 1910s, I guess you call them. Uh, everything in Europe is in a gigantic mess, even though the war is over. Well, why is that? Well, because the war broke everything. Uh before 1914, there had been something that's sometimes called a hundred-year peace since the end of the Napoleonic Wars. There were still small wars, but not of this scale. And, and you know, Europe was still dominated um, by kings and emperors in many places, even though uh, democracy was rising. And this whole world just comes to an end. And four great empires in Eastern Europe, the Russian Empire, the German Empire the Austrian Empire and the Ottoman Empire, they all disintegrate or collapse. And many new nations come into being, and this tends to be a messy business. Where are borders supposed to, to be drawn? Yeah, I mean, all these peoples have lived under empires for hundreds of years. And like, even like in the, the case of the Ottomans, who basically, we're basically looking at uh, an area 
that had been under an empire for 2,000 years. So all these, you know, ethnical factions or different religious groups had just been living together in some sort of a sort of a mosaic form. So if you remove these empires and tell everybody that they have self-determination and should live together as nations, but they're scattered all over the place, I guess you have problems. Yeah. Yeah, the Ottoman Empire this is 600 years, but it yeah, was I mean, based on the ruins of the Byzantine Empire, yeah. which is the Eastern Roman. But yeah, uh, uh, the, my friend, uh, the Russianologist, uh, Jon Olofsson, said in, on the radio recently that the Soviet Union is still collapsing. Yeah. And in a way, this is true. Uh, you know, the, at the time, the collapse of the Soviet Union was a relatively peaceful af affair. If we ignore the civil war in Tajikistan and the Armen Armenia Azer war, but the fact that Russia is trying to uh, take over parts of Ukraine or all of Ukraine is a consequence of the Soviet Union collapsing. And, and so it just takes decades or centuries for empires to collapse. You could even argue that in the Middle East, the Ottoman Empire is still collapsing. Yeah. And these somewhat arbitrary borders with Sunnis and Shias and Kurds and, and people being messed together or torn apart is still ongoing. And and then, um, well, the, the Austria-Hungarian Empire was um, a fairly benign empire. There were all the different peoples uh, had their own culture, their own literature. They were just Uh, they just had to to accept the uh, rulership of the Habsburgs. Uh, but when this all collapsed, um, it takes 30 years and another world war, really, for things to fall into some sort of new order. Yeah, it's. Uh, I guess it's a combination of... Well, it, it is a combination of empires falling, benign empires falling, and, well, not all benign. And hyped up hypernationalism. Yeah, uh, and and uh, people are, are have been living, you know, side by side for for centuries. Uh, often it's the case that they speak German in the cities or Hungarian sometimes. I was in Kosice in Slovakia on a residency last autumn and it was interesting that it was a Hungarian town. Uh, oh yeah, okay. Uh, until the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and then again during World War II. So, it, you know, in Transylvania, it's mostly Hungarian-speaking, but it went, but also Romanian, it went to Romania. So, yeah, there is nationalism, there's who, who should belong where. And then there is also this, this new idea of communism, which is spreading from Russia. You know, the Russian Revolution is, is famously called 10 Days That Shook the World. Nobody knows Uh, what's going to happen, where this is going to go. And the Russians uh, invade Poland, the the Reds. And for a while, there is a communist revolution in Hungary. There's also one in Bavaria. And it's quite possible, actually more possible than it was ever, has ever been since, that there will be this tide of, of Red Revolution flowing all over Europe. So we have basically newly formed states fighting each other, And then newly formed states, or in some cases like the remnants of, you know, previous states like Germany, having civil wars and or infighting that doesn't quite reach the the reach the level of civil wars, but is you know there's significant civil unrest. Yeah, there are attempted coups and these are put down, and there's fighting in the streets. And the old order 
it's gone. Uh, and what should replace it? Well, this is what people all over Europe are arguing about and sometimes fighting about. And this also spills over to Iceland. So Europe is, well, not maybe a blaze, but it's a mess in the early 20s or after the war. But what's what's happening in Iceland? Uh, well, to answer that, we should go a bit farther back as well. Uh, the 19th century has been fairly benign for Iceland after you know, almost 500 years of uninterrupted misery and volcanic eruptions and plagues and famines, we go a whole century without famine. Yeah, what a what a boon. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, it's... I, I mean, I guess, yeah, Iceland got its independence in 1918 like everybody else, it seems. Yeah, like everybody else is pretty much the case for, for not unrelated reasons. No, yeah, and... Uh, but we hadn't really become that sort of advanced society that the uh, more of the european countries had become at that point we're we're, we're still pretty backwards uh, in many ways and yeah. i guess i guess it's sort of you can kind of look at the numbers if if you look at 19th century iceland the last time we checked out was in 1909 when uh, during the the so-called revolution in Iceland. 1809. 1809, sorry. And in 1809, there were 300 people living in Reykjavik. Yeah. Iceland was an agrarian society. There was there were no cities, there were no towns really to mention. 300 mm-hmm. was the biggest place in mm-hmm. the country. And that doesn't really start to change until the middle of the 19th century, where the population is, is roughly at 60,000, and people start sort of slowly moving into towns. And uh, also during that part of the century, people moved to the latter part of the 19th century. People uh, move abroad a lot. They move to Canada and the United States. Yeah, but because this is one of the disasters that we do have, which is the austere eruption of 1876. And a cold spell. And a cold spell, which previously might have led to yet another famine, as, as it always did. But at this point... The possibility of moving to North America has opened up. There is a place called New Iceland in what is now Manitoba. Yeah. And the uh, the Canadian government is actually interested in getting people to move in. It's, it's very cold there, so they probably decided it's fine for Icelanders. They'll, they'll manage. <laughs> uh, they had a hard time of it to begin with, but in the end, they, they did prosper. So, yeah, about 20,000 people out of 80,000 leave Iceland and for North America, particularly Canada in in the 1880s. Yeah, we didn't have a famine, but the Swedes had a famine at that same time. And people left for America. Yeah, everybody's so. going to America. So, yeah, uh, but uh, as, as sort of the century comes to an end, there is like, you know, roughly 7,000 people living in Reykjavik, which is a huge difference from 100 years before. Yeah, and then fishing is becoming a bit more of an industry. There are the first... Uh, boats that are not first is a sailing boat and then there are mechanical boats before the only way to fish would be to row out and so it would be six or eight men rowing and of course this was very dangerous because weathers can change quickly and you had to be able to lift a rock and prove that you could lift a big rock to show that you could uh, that you were worthy of, of 
getting a place on this boat. But it was a it wasn't a full time job being a sailor. It was just something that farmers did in the summer usually. And it's around the turn of the century we actually start. Icelanders actually start having larger fishing vessels, which they hadn't had before. No, it just happened to be located in some of the best fishing grounds in the world. And we were sort of <laughs> curiously looking at, at British and Norwegian ships fishing <laughs> in droves all the time. On the horizon. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe we should do some of that someday. And, and, and now, the early 20th century, we are beginning to. Yeah. So, you know, Reykjavik is becoming a town. Uh, industries are developing. There are still no roads. To speak of no uh no really? railroads now or then and uh i guess it from the turn of the century Reykjavik really starts growing so there doesn't seem to be a population growth in the countryside at all everybody just moves to a town yeah so the, the, the way i was taught this is that and it's i think it's very rough approximation in 1910, there were 10,000 people. In 1920, there were 20,000 people. In 1930, there were 30,000 people. And and, and 40,000 people. I think it sort of checks out because by today, it's over 200,000 people in the greater Reykjavik area. So, Yeah, I think it, it's close enough. I mean, I'm looking at the numbers, and in 1920, it's, it's 17,679 people. <laughs> Almost 20,000. Yeah. 1930, it's 28,000. So it's close enough. Yeah. Yeah, it's a rough estimate. And uh, Iceland is also making its first steps towards independence. Uh, Parliament has has returned after being closed down for a while in uh, 1845. There's an independence movement uh, centered around the University of Copenhagen, mostly. Uh, But in... uh, 1874, um, Iceland gets its first constitution, which is actually a gift from the Danish king. And in front of the uh, the seat of government today, there's a statue of the king presenting us with our constitution, which is actually still in force, except we've uh, erased the word king and put in the word president instead. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice document. Uh, <laughs> Old. Yeah, yeah, it just seems... Not worth the effort to change it, although it's a, it's a continuing debate. Uh, yeah, it is. And then I guess uh, we get home rule in 1904, and then... Yeah, which is a big deal, because uh, the Icelandic minister is actually resident in Reykjavik rather than Copenhagen. So it's the first time, really, that Iceland is ruled from Iceland, mostly, although the king still has a veto. And, um, yeah, there are some tourists coming in sort of the beginning not just the beginning of Icelandic fishing but also the beginning of Icelandic tourism yeah this is true we uh we just discovered that the first Icelandic tourist magazine was published once in 1892 yeah called uh, the tourist in Iceland <laughs> didn't have any success no maybe a little bit ahead of its time but you're now publishing a a magazine partly aimed at tourists which um I was first editor of, so it's ready to be great So yeah, would you describe that as thriving? It's uh, uh, it's managed there. to exist for twenty years, which <laughs> is quite a lot in this business. True <laughs> media business. So uh, yeah, Iceland is sort of it's it's still provincial and it's a bit isolated, but it's becoming more a little bit more cosmopolitan. There's a big department store in Reykjavik where you can buy 
beer and cigars that they make and and you can buy stuff to make dresses and and whatnot um but we're looking at a a bit of an icelandic theme like we like you know usually everything that happens in europe ends up sort of happening here too yeah but it it tends to happen later and then when it's happened it happened faster Mm -hmm. so we go from being a completely agrarian society in 1815 Mm -hmm. 1850 sorry and but by the turn of the century especially just after the war we have a working class and we have you know a bourgeoisie i guess or whatever however you pronounce that french word Uh, (laughs) and and we start having class politics before 1918 all of the political parties uh revolved around independence and after 1918 they all disappeared and we got new political parties during the war and after the war, which were all class-based. Yeah. Apart from uh, dealing with uh, occasional uh, mites that infested sheep or whatever they're called, the the main issue of Icelandic (laughs) politics in the late uh, 19th and early 20th centuries was, should we leave Denmark soon or quickly, or should we leave Denmark slowly? And this was what people were disputing. And then uh, World War I happens, and both Denmark and Iceland stay out of it, but Iceland gets its own sailing flag because they're worried that if Denmark gets sucked into the war and people start shooting Danish ships, they don't want to be having the Danish flag. They want their own. Um, the British consul, who is the aptly named Eric Cable, sort of unofficially takes over the country. It only takes one consul here, but he insists that all the conversations between Denmark and Iceland will be conducted in English. So As they have ever since. No. <laughs> <laughs> started then so that he could he could listen to what people are saying and, and, and monitor them. And, and uh, it may have been something of a misunderstanding because neither the Danes nor the Icelanders at this time were as fluent in English as they usually are today. Nope. So, so Iceland may have sort of semi-accidentally have declared independence, but... Uh, ultimately what happens is... Do you mean it was just a translation misunderstanding? A bit, which just gets the thing translation, I mean. moving. And the Danes, they, they were sort of reluctant, but suddenly they become very willing to grant Iceland independence. They're sort of offering us even more than we want at a time. And this is because as Germany is starts to lose the war, there is a considerable Danish minority in northern Germany in Schleswig mm-hmm. that uh, the Danes want returned to Denmark. The Danes want the area back. Yeah, they lost it in 1864 yeah. in a war with the Prussians. Yeah, exactly. And now they find see a way to get it back. Um, and so they become very interested in these Wilsonian points that everyone should decide which country they want to belong to. And then they say, well, if Icelanders... They should be able to decide their fate, and so should the Danes in northern Schleswig. And this is what happens. The Danes in northern Schleswig get to vote. They, um, get, they That area is returned to Denmark and remains Danish to this day. So the Danes actually benefit from the war without um, territorially, without having taken part. And Iceland becomes a sovereign country in uh, 1918. Still a part of the kingdom of Denmark, but uh, the Danish king is now titled king of Denmark and Iceland. So technically they keep us 
And they get slash week. Yeah. Uh, smart, smart people, the Danes. Yeah, they tend to do well for themselves, the Danes. Yes, they do. Yeah. What, are they not officially the happiest people in the world? But we have class politics, so I guess class politics and a new country, we must be, there must be a massive debate going on on where to take this new thing. What should it become? Yes, Iceland is now finally able to determine its future. But what sort of future should it be? So we're back, uh, Valur. It's 1918. Iceland is independent. Politic politics have changed. But uh, what are the main political parties and what sort of groups in society do they represent? Yeah, it's, things are just coming into being and 1918, when Iceland becomes sovereign on the 1st of December, it's actually a very miserable year. Uh, the German uh, U-boat war is, is tightening, which would have led to a famine if it had lasted longer, but the Germans fortunately surrender and on the 11th of November. There is the beginning of the year, something known as the Great Frost Winter, where apparently you could walk across Reykjavik Harbor on ice. There is the Katla eruption, and there is Spanish influenza coming, which will go on to kill quite a lot of people. Uh, so into this uh, this not very promising beginning, um, people start to, to mold the future um, as they see it. And, uh, and an era begins that's called the beginning of Icelandic class politics. It's so cold. I was, I was told by uh, my uncle, who was a farmer, that his grandfather described to him, his grandfather was also a sheep farmer, that uh, during that winter sheep would start making sounds that they never make, kind of screaming sounds, and then just die from from exposure. Mm. Which kind of sounds not great. No, an Icelandic sheep, they've been used to bad weather here for over a thousand years, and they their wool is very thick. And which is why it makes such nice sweaters these days. And even they just scream in terror at the abject cold of the great frost winter of 1918. And die. And die. Yes, well... Yeah, the, the, the Spanish influenza is here and, and rages for about, what, two, three years? Kind of like COVID? Yeah. But with a much higher mortality rate? Yeah, I, I think about, about 400 people die, which I think is roughly close to COVID, but here it's out of a much smaller population. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the population, as we were discussing before in Reykjavik, is, is uh, it's it's less than 17,000 in 1918. Yeah, and the, actually the close off the north, um, so the, the influenza doesn't reach there, so uh, a lot of the people who die are in Reykjavik, and there are some days when just everyone is sick yeah. and no papers come out which at that time were the only uh, media that were available and uh, yeah my own great grandfather who was uh, was not a sheep farmer but he was laying telephone lines um, to the west side of Reykjavik he got Spanish influenza he did not die but his son did and uh, because of that uh, he and his wife uh, decided to have another child, which became my 
my grandmother. So uh, if it wasn't for the Spanish influence, uh, uh, I wouldn't be here, which is one of these butterfly effects that uh, alternative <laughs> oh. history is based on. <laughs> so back to the political parties. We have a couple of political parties formed during the war. The, well, Framsjöngnaflokkurinn, or the Progressive Party, as we tend to call it. Yeah, which are anything but really. <laughs> they, no, they're uh, more of a, yeah, they're, they're not exactly progressive. No, they are the Farmers Party. Uh, they, they actually do have some sort of bit more socialist or, or rather cooperative ideals. They, they put together these cooperatives where farmers bound together and they uh, import products themselves so they're not so uh, uh, dependent upon these big city merchants that they don't really like. Uh, but yeah, they band together in, in, in their own party in, in 1916, which will become a, a very influential party in 20th century and, and remains to this day. Yeah, so they represent sort of the, the farming society which had dominated Iceland for the past I don't know, thousand years. Yeah, uh, there's still a sort of a, you know, the the political party of people of means, which eventually would be called the Independence Party or Socialist a few years later, but is at this point called the Home Rule Party, I think. Yeah, which is becoming anachronistic because obviously uh, Home I, Rule has been achieved <laughs> and sovereignty has been achieved. So, but they are conservatives; they like to <laughs> keep conserve names the way they were, but. It's only in 1929 that they rebrand themselves the Independence Party, which is brilliant rebranding because this is what Icelandic people supposedly like the most. Independence from the Danes, but also personal independence. So later on in the 20th century, they would become the party of, uh, you know, of, of, uh, of libertarianism from, you know, sort of free market ideology. But at this point, they are still the most uh, powerful party. They have the prime minister. Um, uh, the first minister came in 1904, but during the war it's expanded to three, and the, they have Prime Minister Jon Magnusson. So they they are the powers that be in a way. And just like the Progressive Party is formed in 1916, like we said, but that same year we have a, a so Party of Social Democrats uh, being founded too. Yeah, Alþýðflokkurinn, which means the. The People's, People's Party. Or... People's Party, yeah. Sort of the party of the common man, but People's Party would be yeah, uh, an easier translation. But yeah, it's a social democratic party on, on that model. And because Reykjavik uh, and to a lesser extent Akureyri is becoming just big enough that there is a working class. So they have a constituency there. Yeah, which are able to band together. And um, one of the first issues um, that a certain uh, Ola Fredriksson fought for, who was um, who became the, the editor of the paper, Althiobla, which is a social democratic paper. And there are actually a lot of papers being published in Iceland at this time. Sometimes the same papers published many times during the day. Of course, this is before radio. But the, one of the major issues is something called the, the waiting law, which might be called, called the, should rather be called the sleeping law, because at this time, when uh, sailors go out to sea, they are working the whole time. They are gutting fish for as long as they can remain standing, and they are 
cutting their fingers off and falling off the boats. And it's a very dangerous and terrible situation for them uh, because they have no rights whatsoever. So it's the first sort of labor law we pass. Yeah, and, and this has been campaigned for and, and fought over. And, and finally, they, by law, they are supposed to get six hours of sleep per 24 hours, which is still not a lot, but it's a lot more than nothing at all. Well, it makes it less likely that you cut your fingers off. Anyway. Yes, infinitely. They actually work better with uh, getting a minimum amount of sleep. But uh, so we have here these political parties. They all have newspapers that represent their uh, platforms. Yeah. And the Social Democratic Party has a newspaper that is edited by one Olaf Fredriksson. Yes. Who is the person we'll be talking about now for a, for a little while. Yeah, who became influential in Iceland and could have become a lot more influential if things had gone only slightly differently. So, Olaver is born in the mid-1880s and uh, educated in Denmark like everybody else. Yeah, if you have an education, it's going to be from Denmark. The University of Iceland is only founded in uh, 1911. And he becomes the editor of, of the Social Dems uh, daily paper in, in what is it 1919 or something like that yeah it's around that time and uh, he uh, goes to commit what is it called committen committen uh, committen meeting in, in 1921 yeah so this is where the social dams we, we're still in the period of time where social democrats are are uh, in kind of in league with, with international communism yeah it's not entirely sure how all that it's going to land. The Social Democrats, or sometimes just called Socialists, were the, the Workers' Party before the war. Then they split during the war because the Social Democrats support the, the their governments, the communists do not. So they are just in the process of splitting everywhere. Even in, uh, in Germany in 1918, both the Social Democratic and Communist Republic are proclaimed on the same day. Ah. Uh, but the Social Democrats win there, and they do in most places. Um, in Norway, they also split at this time. But in Iceland, there's still just the one party for the left. Yeah, and um, uh, and so they have contacts to to Moscow, and uh, some people go visit. They still uh, in in what is becoming the Soviet Union. Um, who is now in the process of winning the civil war? Yeah, that has been really bloodily contested. Um, invite people from all over into to their party congresses, and uh, one of the people who visits is Oliver Fredriksson, and he comes back with a guest. Yeah, a little bit more than a guest. It's uh, actually a, a teenage boy, about fifteen, called Nathan. Friedman, uh, Friedman, uh, who um, is originally Swiss, who can speak German, which is better um, at, at this time. Uh, some educated Icelanders actually can speak German. Um, and of course, he can speak Russian since he grew up there. He has lost his parents during yeah. the Civil War, and uh, Ola Fredriksson decides to adopt him. But there's a, there's a catch. Uh, Nathan uh, Friedman has something called trachoma. 
Yeah. Which is, uh, it's, it's not glaucoma, but it's a, it's a disease that can lead to blindness. But it's also a disease that's, uh, uh, you, that you can, you can pass on. It's, it's contagious. Yeah. And this, uh, this leads to, uh, shall we say, a, a situation. Yeah. Uh, and the th- authorities uh, decide to deport him. Um, which maybe is not entirely unreasonable. Um, what I mean, now after COVID, we're more used to, to sort of drastic actions being taken uh, around disease. But at that time, the, the Spanish influenza had just been uh, decimating the country. Yeah, so it was, it was a reasonable thing. But uh, Olaf Fredriksson and his sort of, I don't want to say cronies, but I'm saying cronies. They uh, disagree. Yeah, uh, but for for the best reasons, sort of, they want to protect the boy. They also see this as something of an abuse of, of power. Um, maybe it is an example of something that we have become used to the, these last years, is that everything becomes political. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Uh, Covid restrictions all became political. Yeah, and, it's, and, it's a bit of that, and everything these days. So you know, you can't just have a conversation about the best way to handle this. But the the left uh, take a very strong stance that the boy should not be deported, no matter what. And then the the right say the authorities said that he will be deported, no matter what. So they try to deport him. Yeah. So the the head of police in in Reykjavik and and I, I assume the police show up at Oliver's home and, and try to yeah. remove the boy. Uh, I think at this time it's a total of nine policemen in Reykjavik. All right. That's, that's I guess, per capita fine. Yeah, well, there were two hundred years earlier during the revolution of 1809, so that's expanded, but not as much as the city has. But it's also important that they are unarmed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when they... Um, try to to when they go to Olaver's home Olaver has a bunch of guys with him probably some strong sailor types yeah and they uh, essentially beat up the police so the Reykjavik police force is out of commission it's repulsed and for the next three days it's really unclear who dominates Reykjavik they do come back a few days later. They do, but in this, I mean, after this fight takes place, then really anything can happen. Uh, there is no attempt to take over, for example, the parliament building or the seat of government, but it would have been possible. But the Reds, as we can call them, they begin to arm themselves and they find a lot of stuff in Reykjavik. I mean, the world war has just been happening, not here, but a lot of stuff was spilled over. So they are, they are finding knuckle dusters and shotguns and even grenades and bayonets and swords and, and all sorts of things are being brought to Olaver's home. So uh, they're arming themselves. Yeah. So it's not. It's so if so, it's possible that if there's another confrontation, it's still not going to be just fists. It might actually be uh, guns and yeah. and uh, not that blunt instruments. Yeah. And uh, on the other side, 
the the police, which obviously is not able to handle the situation, they start forming a white army of sorts. A militia. Yeah. It was called the White Army, but mostly by, by the, the Reds. But yeah, as a more properly a militia, they are getting office clerks and, and older Boy Scouts and, and YMCA and all sort of associations that, that they think are friendly to the bourgeois authorities. And um, so, so in a sort of like, a, I guess, in a... On a smaller scale, we sort of have the elements that did fuel a civil war in in Finland. Yeah, in the same during the same time. Absolutely, yeah. and and sort of like these these, you know, not not necessarily revolutions, but clashes between uh, factions in in Germany and elsewhere in Europe. Yeah, and and attempted revolution. I mean, there there is no particular reason why it shouldn't happen here. As it did in Finland, where the the left did try to take over government buildings. Here they they don't, but they could have. But they are still um, in this house in Sudegata, which is Olaf's home, which is almost becoming a fort. And the uh, the white army slash militia they have called out the the shooting association. So these guys come with Remington rifles. Okay, yeah. And even though it's still early, of course, they uh, they all have a flask of brennivin on them, so they are drunk and armed. Always a <coughs> great mix. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's a hobby for some people, but but here it's, it's a very dangerous situation, which is why Aska, who is uh, who we, working... Who we, whom we quoted at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, who is uh, as a working woman. Uh, in Reykjavik at the time, and she kept a, a very good diary that has been published later. Um, she is worried that civil war is breaking out, and she is not the only one. I mean, a lot of people expect this, um, including the the unions, ISE, which is sort of a union of unions, and Olaver asks for their assistance, but they are so worried of civil war that they refuse it. So this is then he will not get much help outside his circle so Valor after November 18th as we described all the elements for a violent confrontation are in place but that is not what happens we don't have a violent confrontation what is it that happens then well Olaver makes a monumental decision in these three days he decides to unilaterally disarm so all the weapons that have been gathered are taken from his home and they are locked in uh, the cellar of Vestergata, um, which is a neighboring street among one of his associates. So when the white army and the police come to retrieve the boy, half drunk and armed, there is really no resistance that the Reds can put up. There is some some fist fighting and and uh, Hendrik uh, gets hit in the head with a stick, but there is no serious resistance. Um, but if they had been armed, then it's very likely that all hell would have broken loose, even if no one intended it to. No, I guess like with hindsight of history, uh, I guess with hindsight of uh, <laughs> we always see history in the rearview mirror, yeah, and. 
And I mean, this had all the elements of something potentially catastrophic happening, but it didn't. But we also know that the Russian Revolution did happen, even though the revolutionaries were very few. Uh, at the difference is maybe that they were actually really motivated to revolt, which I guess the the these this group of social democrats weren't. But in 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 the Russian case, very few people managed to take over a couple of buildings and basically have a revolution take place, yeah. which we didn't have at this point. But point being that uh, it could have gone either way if there had actually been a, a violent confrontation. Absolutely. If if the the socialists had wanted to take over uh, government, they more or less could have. It's it's not a very large area. It's the the parliament building, maybe the seat of government. There are just these few buildings. Even in the vast Russian Empire, it was basically just one quarter in Saint Petersburg that you had to control, which the communists there took over. So, if the, if and, there, and there's no army to deal with. You no, don't have, there's no. You don't have to get them on board. No. So they, they, and there's a police force of nine, which, which has already been taken out of action. Yeah. <laughs> so they they could have, but they don't seem to. To want to, and because this sort of happens, I think that accidentally there isn't really no plan other than they just become very emotionally invested in 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 this boy. But they could have taken over, I think. But could they have kept it? Because uh, the government are ultimately able to call on their own supporters who do support it when push comes to shove. Secondly, they could have called upon the Danes because. Iceland is still a part of the Kingdom of Denmark, and in in both fights there is a Danish warship in the harbor with armed sailors, I presume. Yes, and with with a machine gun even. And in both cases, the government asks them to come ashore to assist them, but the Danes say no because they know if they would have come ashore and started shooting Icelandic people, all hell would break loose, and this would make them deeply unpopular. And they are trying to sort of be nice to Iceland now that that. Uh, I think it's nominally independent. It seems to be very smart policy. You mentioned in your in your in the chapter in your book that uh, the uh, uprising in in Ireland in 1916 had maybe not led almost directly after war to independence. Had the reaction of the British not been so overarching, so to speak? Yeah, and because uh... they 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 uh, they arrested the the. The revolutionaries or the main revolutionaries and simply just executed them yeah when uh, in the easter rising in in ireland and i used to um, study in belfast actually but in the easter rising in ireland there is a small group of, of nationalist patriots who take over the post office and they take over some of the major buildings in dublin and nobody is particularly interested in this People actually largely support Britain in World War One, and a lot of Irishmen are fighting in the British Army. But when the British start executing all these revolutionaries, it tips almost the whole population from being relatively pro-British or to completely anti-British, just because they start they start shooting so many Irishmen. And so this is a very good way to piss people off is to start uh, shooting their parts of the population. So the Danes know know what's smart, and they stay out of it. They do, but if we imagine that there is an armed 
red sort of army, if there's an actual communist revolution in Iceland, then they would probably have come ashore. Possibly, but let's look at the other scenario. They they stay away, at least for the time being, the Danes. And this does become a violent confrontation. Are we then looking more at, at a kind of a Finland situation? Possibly brewing? Yeah, I... You know, the even the political ideology isn't always so clear, uh, but it would have become very personal very soon. Even in in the history that we actually have, um, Hendrik gets hit in the head by a police baton, and one of his supporters goes and knocks on the door of the policeman's home, and he wants to repay that with some interest. But the policeman is not at home, so nothing comes of it. Hmm. But if we imagine that this uh, this uh, worker would have beaten up the policeman badly, then the police would have beaten him. And even this would maybe just have been a circle of, of fist fights. But if somebody, really anyone, would have gotten killed in this confrontation, there would have been a need to avenge him. You know, this is almost the saga. <laughs> saga style uh, scenario we could, we could have slid into a saga scenario or, or the the Stutlung age the civil war age of of the 12th century yeah which is the century. civil war that we did have and it was largely just families feuding and and taking revenge on each other um, and iceland was even smaller then so in population so this is a scenario that could have played out in perhaps for generations that i mean that well that would have had you know, people have long memories. It could have had connotations in in other sorts of confrontations to come because there is not there is some political unrest in uh, later in 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 this century. There is well, there's a riot in 1932 that you also mentioned in your article. Yeah, the the interwar era is quite tumultuous. Things quiet down a bit after the. White War, as this event becomes known, mm-hmm. uh, all the the government shows some wisdom in in releasing most of the captives. They uh, they get very light prison sentences. Uh, some are even commuted by the the king of Denmark. So things die down. But then here, as everywhere else, the Great Depression happens, and uh, I guess <clears throat> like. Like elsewhere, that has issues attached to it. Yeah. Uh, by this time, the the political situation is actually a bit clearer. The Home Rule Party has become the Independence Party, just the Conservative Party. We still have the Progressive Party, but the left has split in two. We have uh, the Social Democrats, Alfred Lockerin, but we also have the Communists, who... Uh, who are much more militant, who actually have close ties to Moscow, and uh, and who are uh, quite ably led by um, by people who who are, who are more doctrinate Marxist. Ola Fredriksson, he he was influenced by communism, but he was also sort of a humanist, and he you know he, he just liked some of the ideas, but he wasn't an indoctrinate communist with clear ideas about world revolution and so on so after the white war he sort of slips uh, slips out of view into obscurity yeah he doesn't become 
much of a leader of the left, but people remember this sort of his martyrdom, just a few years and a few days in prison. Um, uh, so in uh, 1932, the same thing sort of happens again. So you have a a, a massive fistfight. Yes. Um, <laughs> These things are remembered for a long time. <laughs> um, I think everyone hasn't heard of, of this event. It's uh, the, I mean, after the, the depression here is very bad. Uh, a lot of people lose their jobs, and uh, there is uh, something called Atunabotavina, where uh, people are put to work for the government. You know, the joke is that they dig ditches and then they fill them up again, which is not entirely true, but the but it's just That's... giving people some some work so to, to so that they will get paid, so they will inject money into the economy. It's fine Keynesian uh, economics, yeah. which is uh, practiced also by Roosevelt at this time. Just get people to do something and then you get things moving a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I guess the, the this 1932 riot has to do with the, the pay of the people who are digging ditch, ditches to fill them again. Yeah, they, they are going to reduce the pay. So there's a big meeting. Um, the uh, In Reykjavik. In Reykjavik. Um, the police, uh, I think, try to break it up. In any case, there are altercations, and and the and the whole police force is beaten up again. Were there more than nine at this point? <laughs> they were more than nine, but they're still unarmed, um, and, uh, and this pisses them off. So essentially, you only need a few dozen guys to beat up the police force, and you can can essentially take over the country. Um, so the question again is, why didn't they? Um, well, at this point, there's at least radio to take over. So you have to take over the radio, you have yeah. to take over the parliament, and I guess the prime, prime minister's office. Yeah, and at this time, the radio... Post office. Yeah, and the post office and radio station are in the same building, next to the parliament building, so That's, they only uh, need to take over this one square. Ge geographically simple. Yeah. But, but again, nothing happens. No, um... The, I mean, these sort of are doctrinal communists by now who have learned about revolutions. Uh, but this is not really a revolutionary time. There is no, uh, unlike the early 20s when revolution is spreading, it doesn't now, even though there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of class struggle everywhere. Because, and the Danes are, well, we're still in Union of Denmark, the, the Danes are less involved, but. The, the leaders of the communists, Einar Holgersson and Brynjör Benson, they know that Iceland is in the British sphere of influence. And they know that any communist revolution in Iceland will eventually be put down, if not by the Danes, then by the British, who no doubt would have intervened if, if, if they were asked to by the legitimate government of Iceland. Yeah, I mean, they had intervened in the in the uh, civil war in in Russia. Yeah, they had in the early twenties, late nineteen. Well, in nineteen ninety, twenty twenty one. Yeah, not very successfully. Uh, no, but, no, but then <laughs> and still they probably maybe just did more to piss the Russians off and get them to to side with the communists rather than uh, anything else. But yeah, they they. Uh, I mean, in in World War One, they had one consul take over the country with a telephone and 
as we'll discuss later, in, in World War II, they actually did yeah. send an actual army. But uh, everyone knew that Iceland was in the British sphere of influence. And um, uh, a necessary preliminary to a revolution in Iceland was a revolution in London, which, according to Marxist theory, was going to happen any any day. Any day. And and probably still will happen. Yeah, it's just, any day. It's just you know, around the corner. Yeah. So, in 1932, the police force gets taken out of action yet again, and revolution is possible. Instead, everyone goes home to dinner. Yeah. Which, like, which is particularly important in Iceland, that you should always show up for dinner at the right time, which is seven. Fish and potatoes. Mm, no doubt. That's what they were having. <laughs> uh, you did sort of ponder whether or not... the. Uh, you know, had there been a more of a violent confrontation in 1921, the 1932 one might actually have become more violent also because people would have hold, held grudges over the past decade. Yeah, and they would remember who did what to whom. And, and I think even if things could have crowded down again, they would have sprung up at this point, which was, by Icelandic standards, still a violent period. There were other altercations, but no one was killed because it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, they didn't use any weapons. But then, then the war comes and I guess uh, we only have a couple of, of sort of civil unrests or protests following the war. Yeah. I mean, the, this could, of course, have played out differently with the culture of violence. And on the one hand, in the late 30s, the police actually start arming themselves. They sell fish. Uh, the Icelandic government sells fish to Spain and instead it gets weapons from the Spanish. So after the the early 30s, it's no longer possible to just beat up the police. I mean, they are still unarmed on the streets, but they do have access to weapons uh, as a last resort. And um, then when the British do come in May 1940, the police do not put up much of a fight or any any, any sort of fight? <laughs> any fight whatsoever? Uh, probably sensibly. Uh, but uh, but if, if we have sort of a strong culture of violence and of, of violent opposition to the government, we could imagine that, well, probably the communists would have been, uh, might have had some sort of active resistance against the British. Which they didn't, but I mean, uh, the the communist leaders you mentioned before both got arrested and shipped over to to England during the war. Yeah, they were. There was a strike, as it usually was, the uh, for the people uh, by the workers who were building an airport for the British, which is today Reykjavik Airport, mm-hmm. and so the British had the soldiers just take over the jobs. And then they distributed flyers to the soldiers asking them not to do that, which is actually asking them to uh, to be treasonous, sort of, to be insubordinate. Um, and so they arrested uh, leaders of the communists, which were members of parliament mm-hmm. and the editors of uh, the new communist paper. And they were sent to, to Britain, in Britain. But if uh, at this point they were firmly opposed to the British because this is the time of the Stalin-Hitler-Ribbentrop-Molotov pact. So they are, if not allied to the Germans, they are opposed to the British at least. Yeah, it was a highly confusing 
pact for the communists everywhere. Yeah, they were they were going back and forth to from Hitler being the main enemy, and then when the Soviet Union invaded Finland, that was also a problem for the Icelandic communists because uh, Icelanders were very much opposed to the invasion of Finland. Yeah. Uh, uh, so maybe they would have uh, fought the British in some ways, and maybe the British would have retaliated forcefully as they sometimes did because they were already fighting a world war yeah uh, and then and this would maybe you know turn people against the british but it would have been only a short window because in uh on june 9, 22nd 1941 hitler invades the soviet union and then the communists have to sort of flip-flop again because now the Nazis are the enemy and the British are allies. So they actually become the most the strongest supporters of the British and then the Americans in Iceland during the war. Highly confusing. Yeah. For the communists. Yeah, but they become so militant that at at the end of the war, Einar Olkerson, the, the leader of the Communist Party, actually wants to declare war on Germany. Um for on behalf of Iceland, which is well, in, in order for Iceland to join the United Nations, it, it at this time, it would have been necessary, but uh, Iceland is sort of, uh, sort of still nominally neutral, even though they they have an agreement with the Americans, and and it's decided not to declare war on Germany. But the the person who is most strongly in favor of doing so is Einar Olkerson, the communist leader, man of principles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, moving on to more civil unrest, uh, the war ends. It does. The Americans leave. Mm, for a while, they do. Yeah, briefly. The army leaves. But uh, we then, or we at least, Parliament decides to join the newly founded NATO. Yeah. yeah it, it's in the process of being formed, so Iceland becomes a founder member. But this is a very politicized issue, a very divisive and will actually be so for the next 40 years at least, even longer. And because Iceland has, upon sovereignty, and in 1944 it became a full republic, no longer in union with Denmark, they, uh, Iceland has declared perpetual neutrality. And now, um, with the situation increasingly unclear, Cold War brewing, many communist coups in Eastern European countries, uh, yeah, the government decides to become founding member of NATO. The communists are not happy. A lot of people, thousands of people, go to Österbetler, the town square, yeah. to protest. Um, I, this, this has become so debated afterwards that it's not, and everyone has their own version, so it's not even entirely clear. Someone, someone probably throws something at the parliament building. The police who have armed civilians on their side with sticks they rush out they storm the crowd this is a very bad idea the crowd starts taking bricks out of the pavement to beat the police and the police beat them with the sticks and this is the first time that tear gas has been used in Iceland to disperse the, the crowd um, so uh, people will go on arguing and protesting against NATO membership for the next 40 plus years, but uh, there will never be a confrontation like this. But again, if people had been killed in the 20s and the 30s, 
then uh, this could have turned a lot more violent than it did. Yeah, very likely. And at this point, there isn't really an American army in Iceland. Um, actually, a part of the NATO agreement is that there will not be an American army in Iceland in peacetime. But after the Korean War breaks out, an American army returns uh, to Chaplavik. And one social democrat actually is saying that in on uh, in the morning of that thirtieth uh, of May, nineteen forty-nine, there was also a brief revolutionary window when all the police force was engaged on Esterbadler, and it would have been an opportunity for people actually to seize their. They were still unarmed, except with batons and. And tear gas, it would have been possible to seize their armory and people could have armed themselves left and then they could have stormed the police. They could have taken over. There was this brief window where it was possible, but it was it was not done, nor was it intended. People were just protesting against NATO membership. It would have also required a level of organization unknown to Icelanders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think gathering on Esterbudler and, and sort of taking... Taking rocks out of the pavement to pelt the police with is more. <laughs> it was the organization that that they were capable of. But then, with an American army of well, I think seven thousand or so, after nineteen forty nine, revolution is not really possible in Iceland because they the, would, yeah, if if asked to and. Even in some cases, if not asked to, they they would have entered. So the, for the first time, really, apart from the war, there is a, a considerable military force in Iceland that uh, that can prevent a few dozen determined idealists from 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 taking over the reins of power. <laughs> So after 1949, Valor, there has really never been a window of opportunity for revolution in Iceland. Well, the Americans did leave again in 2006. True. And this was actually because Donald Rumsfeld was more interested in using the planes that they had here in Iraq and the helicopters, but that's and but the Cold War was over for a while at least. <laughs> yeah, it had been for a while. So it's, it seemed unnecessary. Uh, so at that point, there was no longer a military force in Iceland. So technically, it was possible. But politically, it was not happening. Not in 2006, because everyone at that point was busy making money, as a, making money during the day and barbecuing in the evening, as the saying went at the time. Yeah, yeah. There was a, there was a massive economic upswing uh there like the banks had been privatized in 2003 and 4 yeah and this had resulted in a uh an economic boom that then turned out to have been uh well not well founded let's say it that way no yeah everyone thought that they were going to get fabulously rich essentially they just had taken out huge loans and then the whole thing blew up in 2008 in the fall. And then the bank, yeah, then the banks collapsed in the in, in October 2008. Um, and then we had something called the pots and pans revolution, which was sort of a huge revolution where everyone went in front of the parliament building and, and banged their kitchenware until the 
the government uh, resigned and there were new elections. Yeah, the, true. And there was some, I mean, there was some fighting with the police. There was some, um, yeah, one guy had his arm broken, but it was, uh, it was largely peaceful on both sides. I mean, people were pelting the police with eggs and with skir uh, <laughs> and, and other uh, things that they found in the fridge. But the police largely didn't took it. They, 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 they didn't resort to violence. But if we imagine people remembering their fathers and grandfathers, everyone would have an uncle who was killed during the interwar era or even in the late 40s then they might have been throwing something other than eggs at the police or the police might have done something other than, than just standing there than just taking the beating yeah than just standing there with the steer on their on their faces and the pots and pans revolution might have been called something entirely different yeah different types of kitchen utensils maybe yeah and non kitchen appliances <laughs> would have been so with with the culture of violence there certainly was i mean there was already a lot of anger and a lot of fear and that time and i just remember no one was entirely sure what was going to happen we, we can sort of see it as, as harmless in retrospect but it didn't always feel that way no it didn't it was very it was a strange thing to to follow and potentially could have happened could have sort of broken into something else the resentment was so great yeah but then i guess people when the government collapsed i guess people sort of felt like they had gotten what they wanted yeah and the, and the government did resign that was the end of the pots and pans revolution the new elections were held in the spring of 2009 left-wing government was awarded in which then became soon became very unpopular as will happen but that's Another story, that's what actually did happen. <laughs> we are more interested here in what didn't. So uh, if the white war had turned hot, if people had been killed on that November day in 1921, it might have reverberated through the 30s and 40s and even to the early uh, 21st century with a culture of violence brewing, exploding now and again. And who knows what would have happened during and after the the revolution of 2008. Iceland would not at least have been known to be this peaceful, idyllic place that it is and has been. <laughs> no, and sometimes things turn out worse than they could have, but in this case, they could have gone a lot worse. So that was it for the day. Uh, Next time, Valor will be talking about uh, You Tell Me, Valor. Yeah, we are going to be talking about what if the Nordic countries had united, which they sometimes did, but yeah. what if it would have lasted to this day? Yeah, what if? This podcast was produced by Sentry Freyr Stenson. The book, What If Vikings Had Conquered the World and Other Questions of Icelandic and Nordic History by Valur Gunnarsson is out now on Salka Publishing. 
Find it on salka.is or the Grapevine online store. This has been a Reykjavik Grapevine production. For news, events, culture and travel advice, head to grapevine.is.